0: What it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis.
1: Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that is shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. QBAC is a next-generation advancement solution that reimagines alumni engagement to increase major planned and principal giving. QBAC acts as a force multiplier for fundraisers, enabling them to focus on what they do best, developing deep relationships with prospects and cultivating them into lifelong donors. QBAC automates the qualification process beyond simple scoring to ensure that your fundraisers have the best prospects. QBAC also uncovers actionable insights about current and future prospects to help fundraisers develop personalized cultivation strategies. Start closing bigger gifts in less time by going to www.cubac.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? I'm looking forward to two things this summer, getting back to the ballpark with my kids and getting the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow back on the calendar. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's for sense sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All we need you to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works there is no cost to your organization and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the responsive fundraising roadshow in your community, reach out and let's have a conversation today. Hi, Alex. I am delighted to have you on the fundraising talent podcast today. I have been looking at the stuff that you all, you and the team at open have put together and uh, I'm looking forward to unraveling that or, diving into it or whatever the right expression is, but before we do that today, Alex, how about we just let you introduce yourself to our listeners?
2: Hi, Jason. Thank you so much for having me. It's really exciting to be here. I'm really looking forward to yeah, having a chat and it's my first time on a podcast, which is very exciting. Um, so I'm Alex Travastav and I work at Open OpenCreate. So um, we are a strategy and creative agency based in London, but we work globally. So we have charity clients um, all over the world in different territories. Um, and we have most recently been working on the charity benchmarks COVID-19 impact. Impact monitor, looking at the impact that COVID has had on a quarterly basis on on charities, um, specifically in the UK.
1: So before we dive into that, and I certainly want to, that's that's going to be the focus of our uh, attention. But it doesn't sound like you're a, a, a charity person. that You're not a nonprofit person. So how does a how does a how does the how does a person like yourself maybe land up in the charity space?
2: Oh, so I actually started as a charity person. Okay, there you um, go. <laughs> so yeah, so I uh, I studied, I fell into it as I think most people do into fundraising. But um, I studied international relations at university, and then managed to get any job at Save the Children in London. I just applied for anything that they would have me for, and I ended up. At a, uh, in a temp role at Save the Children. And then I managed to get into their direct marketing team and kind of worked my way through an individual giving and um, in direct marketing at Save the Children UK, yeah, uh, which was really fascinating. And then I moved around a little bit within the sector of different organizations based in London. So all international development, strangely. Um, so Save the Children, ActionAid, and UNICEF. And then I did a little bit of time at a, a startup. So I worked at an ed tech startup for a little bit, um, which was uh, fascinating and lots of interesting stuff as kind of product is becoming, you know, a huge thing in individual giving um in the UK and I'm sure in the States as well and um, all over the world. Um, and then I had been actually a client of, of opens the, the agency I now work for at various charities that I worked at before Um so yeah, it's it was a great move to come and come and work for them. After that, yeah. So I'm a charity girl at heart, really. Well,
1: I the the report that you all put together came across my radar. I pay attention to that stuff because I get the privilege of oftentimes interviewing people that put together things like that here on the podcast, and I pay attention to it. It was very quality stuff, um, and I think why it most interested me is I. I've, I've got a pretty good read on sort of what's playing out here in the US and perhaps a little bit in Canada as it relates to COVID and what, what all that has looked like. Like we had a great, we had a large number of people right in the middle of the summer last year from Canada, um, just talking about sort of the COVID reality and so forth. But honestly, I have not gotten a read nor have my listeners been able to get a read, uh, on what's happening in the united kingdom so that's why this is of interest to me so tell us a little bit about the research and then let's um let's just unravel it
2: Absolutely. So um, so it's I I'm, I'm should mention, I work for Open, but we also work with a uh, uh, freestyle marketing on this report. So I just must get um, Alan, Alan Freeman's name in there as well, because he works with us on this. So it's uh, Open Creates and Freestyle Marketing. Um, so for a couple of years um, before I joined Open, they did an annual benchmark report. So there are older reports that looked at kind of annual trends in the UK uh, fundraising market so across across the kind of fundraising piece um but this year we realized that an annual look is probably not going to be it's not going to cut the mustard in terms of what people really want to see and that ability to see data you know faster yeah. uh, so we switched to a, a quarterly view um so the report uh, that we've released so far we're working on the next one it looks at yeah, what has happened in fundraising income, expenditure, staffing levels, um, strategy uh, since, well, throughout 2019 and throughout 2020 to Q3. That's where the data we had, where we uh, published the last report was. So we can compare year on year, 2019 to 2020. Um, but I think what's really interesting, cause, you know, there are other benchmarking um things out there and there's lots of different ways to cut it but what we've been able to do with the help of our participant organizations which has been amazing is look at kind of quantitative and qualitative qualitative uh, that word always catches me <laughs> um look at both sides of that data we also did some interviews with kind of directors of fundraising to get kind of more um you know, conversational feedback about what's happening. We've got staffing levels, fundraising costs. So there's a real depth, I think, um, in this data, which which allows us to kind of, you know, we try not to draw conclusions so much, but to to highlight trends and and, and interesting features that people might find interesting. Um, so yeah, it's been fascinating. It's been absolutely fascinating, and I think a real labour of love for a lot of us. Uh, over here.
1: So before we um, to before we down. sort of go deep dive into it on the back end. Do you feel good about things, or are you like, oh, my gosh, this we're just never going to get out of the dark on this one?
2: I think – I think my colleagues – so, so um, at kind of back end, we did uh, – we, we sent – uh, some, some forms for, for people to fill in, you know, kind of finance people helped fill in some forms, some, you know, leaders from across fundraising filled in some forms. And then I also did some interviews and then I reported back to kind of my colleagues open before we wrote the report. And actually one of the big things that almost everyone said when we came out of that meeting was, this is a lot more positive than we were expecting. Um, And obviously, the bottom has fallen out of some really, really important areas of fundraising. And the the toll on people has obviously been outrageous. It's been awful in a lot of ways. But actually, I think the, and remembering that those interviews were done in kind of November time, uh, October, November time. So in the UK, we'd had a period of slight lockdown easing um, before then and then it all crashed around us again uh, after those interviews had taken place but I think it was quite interesting we'd kind of been in this really difficult position and then everyone had been able to take stock maybe of the last six months slightly obviously everyone was still chasing their tails a a little bit but um, yeah it was interesting that lots of people were kind of talking about to give you an example is they were talking about things like it's giving us an opportunity to do things differently mm-hmm. and we needed to do things differently anyway. Mm-hmm. So actually we'll use this as a catalyst and that is a positive outcome of a really awful situation. So um, it was great to see that, that, you know, a number of people in the sector had, had picked up on that, uh, which, which was excellent. So yeah, it wasn't as doom and gloom as you, you may have feared.
1: Do you think, I have been reading for quite some time, um, John Hagel is a researcher on the West Coast here in the U.S., in the Silicon Valley. And he has talked, he has been talking about, he has been talking about for the last, probably the more, more than a decade, he's been talking about what he calls the big shift. And the big shift is this sort of just, universal worldwide shift of going from what he refers to as a world that is sort of guided by scalable efficiency to a world that is sort of guided by scalable learning. And so we have to start just existing in this constant learning mode. And so rather than constantly sort of exploiting what we know, we have to just constantly explore what we don't know. And it sounds like, if if I'm reading between the lines of what you just said, and I, if I'm and am reflecting on what I've heard probably several times from guests here in the U S., for example, it's that COVID has done the fortunate done done us all the fortunate benefit of maybe in the sector, in our sector, in the nonprofit sector, of sort of flipping the switch on that transition. Does that make sense to you? I mean, Absolutely. is that essentially what people were telling you? Is that We, we have been riding this, this train for so long, this scalable efficiency train, and it has been hitting diminishing returns. (laughs) We've hit that diminishing return so many times and we, you know, we didn't know how we were going to make it. And then all of a sudden COVID comes along and makes us stop and realize that maybe we were just needed to, you know, almost like get off the train and get on another one. Is that kind of what you heard?
2: Absolutely. And I think that comes out on in many ways which uh, it was fascinating to, to go through so one of the pre- the previous report we did looked at 2019 so that was the last annual kind of benchmarks report yeah and one of the big themes that came out of that was something that we dubbed the burning platform which is exactly what you've just described is yeah we refer to it as the burning platform but it's exactly what you've just said um and so a lot of so one of the questions i asked in the interviews was has that changed and the answer was absolutely not but this is the catalyst so that's yeah i completely agree with what you've just said and in some of the ways that that seems to have played out in maybe some more of the detail um so some leaders for example spoke about uh streamlining processes so perhaps you know in this world of needing to be more innovative and being more reactive so you know that that constant state of learning that you've just described actually having 15 people sign off a piece of content or communication or creative before it gets out the door is not very sensible. And so, you know, streamlining those processes and maybe getting more into what a charity, you know, for example, in an international development organization in an emergency, you have different processes for that. Uh, you know, if you're trying to get a direct marketing appeal, you know, you're trying to get a TV ad out because there's just been this horrific earthquake, and you want to make uh, you want to make people aware of it and raise money straight away, mm-hmm. you don't go through the normal processes of sign off. This is just one example yep, of sign off. Yep. Um, And so you streamline those things and you say, actually, who is essential to see this before it leaves the building? And they're the people that see it. Um, And so some organizations and some leaders kind of spoke about that, that kind of change, so streamlining processes, which is really critical. Others spoke about restructuring. um, And actually, I found the conversations around restructuring really fascinating because I think a lot of people said... We either restructured just before COVID, or we are restructuring, but the structure we are implementing hasn't been impacted by COVID. Yeah. It's just been hastened. Um, and those who I spoke to, I spoke to a couple of people who'd restructured just before COVID hit, or they had made the design just before COVID hit, and all of them said they wouldn't, they they, they wouldn't have changed anything if, with the benefit of. of of hindsight if it had been post-COVID so this idea of you know being more integrated busting silos bringing uh you know whether it's brand and fundraising together all of those kinds of themes and obviously lots of organizations had lots of thoughts on what the right structure was um but all of them suggested that COVID didn't change them it just brought them forward and so they're finally yeah they're, they're getting off that train a bit quicker than they they would have been allowed to before and and, and is, to a surge-
1: is the is getting off did, did, did you notice in your research because i and i'm just reflecting on perhaps i'm drawing some conclusions about perhaps what i've read of hegel's stuff is the idea that getting off that train for example is going to be or always has because he's been looking at this stuff for like more than a decade like i said um is far harder for these larger more at least larger institutions that are not as nimble, not as adaptable, they can't they can't move through that bureaucracy any quicker than I mean it's just it's the the institution itself is designed for a very predictable world where efficiency works and not a world where the world literally changes overnight. And so Alex when you, when you when you're looking at the data that you all have looked at Over the last several months, even the last year, all of this data, are you seeing organizations that when that those that were smaller were also more adaptive and nimble and able to respond? Or did did they have the advantage of that? Um, And is it the larger institutions that are struggling?
2: Interestingly that theme didn't come out and it's it's probably worth caveating that the research uh, the, the report that's already been published uh-huh. it's fifteen organizations.
0: Okay.
2: So it's not a huge number. Um it's household names, but it's 50. Yeah. And um, we're currently working on the next report that looks at Q4 as well. And that has about 10 additional organizations in it. And none of the trends have changed. Obviously, the numbers have shifted where well, we've added organizations, yeah. but none of the tra- trends have changed. But I think in terms of size, I think it's a double-edged sword because I think and um, this may be this, I imagine this is the same in most markets. But it's, certainly same, uh, it's certainly true in the UK. Bigger organisations may have had the opportunity to invest in an innovation function before this had happened, okay. and so I think—and um, this is my opinion here—I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not sure that the data necessarily tells us this, but I'm post-rationalising <laughs> that the um, that there wasn't a big dis- discrepancy between sizes because. Small organisations may have been more nimble, but may not have had the right skill set in house. Whereas larger organisations, even though they had to cut through that bureaucracy and cut that red tape, as you've described, maybe had an innovation function as it as it st- as it stood, and so they were just able to kind of be braver and push forward. Um, but one of the things I think that came out of the interviews, in particular, obviously this is harder to see in a data set, is the. Uh, interactions with trustees um and that was a really interesting theme so so a lot of people we spoke to spoke about trustees maybe starting to get it not that all trustees didn't before but i think you know there's been a long uh, i don't know i don't know what the right words are it's not long fought battle but you know a long process with with trustees um in organizations to maybe understand mass fundraising and you know you, you have to you, you put all all this money in up top and then you know in 5 years time you get this great return um you know thinking about things like organizations that've got big drtv programs and stuff like that where that you know that that initial um investment is substantial um and so i think organizations found that those who had invested in individual giving, for example, regular giving programs, where they had that consistent income from years of investing in regular giving, maybe felt vindicated. Yeah. And that helped, um, that helped with trusty trust. Um, and I also think that all of this has just brought to the fore the issues within fundraising and, and what needs to happen, what needs to change and what makes fundraising sustainable, which is diversification. And if you're just constantly you know optimising around the sides and if every year your budget is slightly reduced but your income targets are slightly increased you don't have the opportunity to do something radical because you you know you're 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 beholden to these numbers that get increasingly hard to deliver um that you know there was this feeling that maybe that 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 chain could be broken and, and that trustees were maybe more understanding obviously that's a wildly sweeping statement um but an interesting theme that did come out.
1: Okay. So I can't overlook that you said brave. because um, I always listen to, to qualitative terms like bravery. Are we going to be braver on the other side of this? Are we just going to be braver people and braver fundraisers and perhaps know that the world is, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the things I've been uh, writing a lot about for this new book project is the fact that, you know, Last two decades, for for most of the professional careers and most of the people that are sort of driving fundraising decisions right now, we've experienced three very unpredictable events in the last two decades, starting with September 11th and then with the recession and now with COVID-19. And I think COVID-19 might have been experienced in such a way where, like, to sort of piece together, we've been through this once, we've been through this twice, this is also very different. Every time is going to sort of throw us a different sort of curveball. And now we're going to be a little braver and we're going to know that the world is unpredictable and fundraising practices might be a little different. What do you think?
2: I hope so.
0: <laughs> I hope so.
2: And I think if the recession, I mean, I joined fundraising at the end of the recession in the UK. So I joined fundraising in 2011, yeah, I think it was. Right. Okay. Um, and so the recession really bit in 2008, didn't it? So, um, so I think what what I I kind of know from colleagues and kind of from seeing in my kind of early career is that organizations who managed to spend through that recession Mm -hmm. ultimately won. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And, you know, there are, there are organizations who, you know, went into survival mode and that really negatively impacted their fundraising and still negatively impacts them now, you know, a long time after that, a relatively long time after that. Um, and so I really hope that that is the case. And you know, um, I'm going to quote something really cringy now. But we have a very old, uh, very classic TV program here called Only Fools and Horses. I don't know if you know it at all, but um, yeah, there is uh, uh, a line in there is that "He who dares wins," um, and yeah. I think that's exactly the case with this. And I think you know it doesn't mean blindly spend on fundraising. Of course it doesn't. But I think, and you know, small. Even tactical tests at this point are absolutely critical to to shore up your fundraising for the future.
1: And is that sort of the is that sort of the red flag in 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 the research that you've been looking at? And as you're sort of, you know, the idea that give me that phrase again. He who
2: he who dares wins. He who
1: dares wins. I mean, if you think about that, um, that's sort of that underlying. I mean, that's what entrepreneur, I I teach an entrepreneurship class, social entrepreneurship class at the local college, for example. And that's essentially what we know to be sort of the way that the world works is those who sort of take a risk oftentimes are often the ones who experience the greatest reward. And perhaps what the silver lining in all this is, is that he who dares wins. I mean, is that, is that sort of really what, in some ways did that Is that what the red flag was in some of your findings, that those who wouldn't dare are the ones who are perhaps now or going to be a year from now really sort of struggling to – I think it was your report. If it wasn't your report, it was another report that was – I think there was another headline recently that I read about the same time I read yours that – it's a lot of the the organizations we need to be most concerned about are the ones that we're not even going to know are in in serious distress for like another 18 to 24 months
2: yeah I think to be honest, the empirical data that we've looked at its it's too, it's, it's too early to tell yeah um, so i can't I can't say that looking at that report you know I can I can clearly point to organizations who, who are going to win and those who are going to lose, but that's absolutely not the case. Yeah. And the report the report showed us product areas uh, uh, you know have been the winners and losers and, and some of those are in very you know just uh, common sense terms. So anything that required face-to-face interaction obviously, the bottom fell out of so you know retail collapsed and between q2 2019 and q2 2020 there was a 90 percent drop in income from from charity shops because they were shut and there weren't people on the high street and you know it was illegal to go to them um but then you see uh we saw a huge uh increase in emergency fundraising so something i think this is really interesting the domestication of of emergency fundraising in the uk and i'm sure it's similar in other markets including the us is traditionally we had seen emergency fundraising as something that was done by international development organizations Mm -hmm. and and the emergencies were um you know climate emergencies or um you know earthquakes things like that um and we saw charities in the uk who were domestic charities who had never launched an emergency style appeal going out being brave going out with something like that yeah and the public responding in the most inspiring way and, you know, income being absolutely phenomenal. Um, So I think it, you know, it it may be too broad to, to categorize it braveness part, you know, by organization. I think within, within opportunities, there is, you know, there is a level of bravery to take that step into the unknown, even if it's not unknown for, the sector but the unknown for that organization to allow themselves to get in front of you know relevant audiences and i also think a a huge huge, this is going to sound really obvious but um relevance is the key issue isn't it so you can be you can be brave and stupid right (laughs) Um, right not that i think any of my colleagues you know in the (laughs) uk charity sector are absolutely not but you know theoretically you could do that, can, and that's yeah, not that i think that's what do. we call
1: arrogance right um, prex as american yeah, wow. a, we, we've gotten a lot of those uh yeah <laughs>
2: um so yeah obviously you need to be brave but you also need you know the insight and the strategy behind it whether whether that's reactive and fairly tactical rather than you know a two-year strategy that's pointing you in that direction it could be something that you found an opportunity in last week but if it aligns with your audience if it puts you know if it brings what your organization does and what the audience wants together then it's a you know a sensible thing to do so i think it's it's difficult to judge in overall terms um but hopefully i think being more reactive and in a way that could be classed as being brave you know it is on the up and hopefully will continue to be
1: so it you know when i think about the conversations i have had since um so, so I think what is—I'm sort of hypothesizing here—but um, w- when I put out my first book three years ago, and then started producing these podcast conversations, and I'm having more and more of these conversations, and I'm—I'm I'm typically talking to a fundraising professional who's perhaps about ten years in. They're about ten years in, and um, and one of the things I've I've wondered, and I'm wondering if any of your data sort of points at this, or maybe you picked up on this, and maybe a conversation or two in there. I think there's a more savvy fundraising – so the actual fundraiser whose boots are on the ground inside these organizations, is there a more savvy fundraiser today that perhaps is picking up on the same things that that perhaps an outside organization, like a research organization like yours, has historically been counted on to sort of uncover – is are, are you seeing the same fundraiser that that sort of knows that they've either signed on with a shop that knows the hell what they're doing or that doesn't know what they're doing? Do you follow what I'm asking?
2: I think so, but I don't know if I can answer the question. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I, to be brutally honest, I don't know the answer to that. And I think some of the charity leaders we spoke to spoke about, um, uh, you know, giving people the opportunity to fail, and and you know, and I think it it, got, it harks back to that. Uh, The point I made about trustees kind of giving people the opportunity to fail, you know, you're, you're not a failure if your innovation idea fails because you know, X number of out of 10 are going to, and that's part of innovation. That's part of the risk that you accept as an organization. So I think organizationally, I certainly saw a trend in, in the, you know, in the feedback that, uh, sorry, the, uh, the written responses we received and also the interviews I took, the organizations are moving towards that kind of, being less risk averse yeah. um, i don't know if See, that's I, true I,
1: of and that's kind of what that precipitated my thinking and my question it was your comment about trustees because i think there's a fundraiser out there today that that did not i i think we're just savvier smarter better at this than 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 a lot of us were I mean we're I repeatedly say on the podcast everybody who listens knows that I say that fundraisings in its messy adolescence and it's growing up and so it's becoming a profession that sort of is sort of parting ways with PR and marketing and advertising figuring out its own stuff and 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 how do that how does that translate into like your research and our conversation it means that some of your your fundraisers who perhaps, would not have understood what's playing out if they were on the payroll, say, during, the, during September 11th or during the recession, totally know whether or not their employer knows how to navigate this or not now. Um, I, I, I guess what I'm saying is, is, and this is what I picked up when I had this very large group of Canadian fundraisers on the podcast last summer, I think these people were just better prepared to navigate this Not just because not because it was an uncertain, predictable thing, and that they were able to figure it all out, but they just were more mature fundraisers, and so therefore they just knew how they were just okay with they 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 knew how to figure this out. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that that must be true of of people who have been in the sector for you know ten to fifteen years. I think it must be true, and. Yeah, we definitely, you know, some of the people we work with are absolutely incredible at what they do, and you know, I I want to be stood next to them the next right. time something goes down. Um, but I don't know if that's true of new fundraisers. Like, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I couldn't comment. That maybe this is where I misinterpreted your question. Couldn't comment if someone who joined fundraising a year ago and has been in it a year is better than someone who joined 10 no. years ago when they were a year in. No,
1: I'm kind of getting um, at that 10-year. I'm getting at I'm, – I'm sort of getting at the person The person I'm – the person who was reading my book, for example, the person who's reading my first book was generally not the new fundraiser. It was the person who was 10 years in. And so they were um, – uh, one of the things I'm constantly saying is, is that they're thinking more carefully and critically about the work that they do. Um, so there's not there's not as much, you know, if you think about the way fundraising has historically worked, it's it's largely been based on a lot of impulsivity of the, you know, and, and, and assumes a lot of assumptions about consumer behavior and so forth and so forth. But I think we're actually sort of wising up to the fact that fundraising maybe behaves a little differently and the donor motives are different and that our, our you know, our understanding of the world is different, too, Um and so that person who's 10 or 12 years in, here's the thing. I think that that there's a lot of people who are 10 or 12 years in that are very intrigued by inform. I mean, it's the reason why I'm creating this, this conversation, because I think there's people who are 10 or 12 years in who are very intrigued with infer- this information and know how to read between the lines and know how to translate their experiences through what type of information you're giving them.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, in, in a way, you know, what we do at Open, uh, the, the agency I work for, is is a reflection of that. So, you know, we work in um, strategy and creative, but the, I think over um, uh, um, speaking on behalf of an organisation I wasn't working at during the time that I'm talking about, but the strategy function at Open has grown so significantly over the last twelve years, and it's because people, you know, our, our colleagues in in charity want to know. Who are my audience? What are they interested in? How can I meet them where they are? What is the difference in you, you, what you've just described? And that's why what we offer as an organization, you, we still do incredible creative and that hasn't changed, but what's grown alongside it is, is that kind of strategy piece to to help charities answer those questions that you've, that you've just described. So, you know, we want to launch something. We want to reach new audiences. Who should they be and what should that be with? And, you know, actually starting with the audience rather than, you know, I, you know this charity over there has has launched a subscription product. I want one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we, yeah. We're given the opportunity to actually go back to the beginning and say, right where is the opportunity for growth here? yeah and look at it you know in that really broad sense that actually offers the best return on investment ultimately because you're going at it from you know you're coming at the question from the right position of uh, what is going to work in our context, for our audiences for for what we deliver.
1: So did you, um, did you did you find anything? I'm always interested when I'm talking to researchers. Did you find anything that? Did you find anything that like totally surprised you? Like you didn't expect to find that, and good, bad, or otherwise. But was there anything sort of this sort of this like wow that that you didn't expect the data to tell you?
2: So there were there were obviously lots of things that weren't a surprise at all. So things yeah. like retail and events fundraising
0: yeah.
2: collapsing, yeah. not a surprise. Yeah. Um, things like emergency fundraising ultimately not a surprise. It's really interesting that there was that domestication, but not a surprise. But there were other ways. There, there were other things that were. So one of them um, was around major giving. And actually, you know, I think inherently we know that in times of crisis people step up, and our supporters are. Our biggest asset, and there's no question about that. And over the last year, supporters have been incredible, and nearly everyone I've spoken to for this report have said that you know our supporters have just been with us like never, be- never before, um, which is amazing, mm-hmm. um, and I'm really glad we can say that. And so, for major giving, for example, where and I'm not uh, so I, I'm not major giving or philanthropy, you know, high net worth individual sure. fundraising, whatever it might be uh, labeled in in whatever organization, because it changes, you know, not just the other side of the pond, but uh, organization to organization, what we label things. Um, but that might traditionally have been, you know, driven by its relationships, isn't it? So it's, it could be face to face. It could be getting that meeting in. Um, and obviously, that's not been able to happen in the same way. And that face to face time has been very different with Zoom but actually you know looking at some of the figures so for for major giving between q2 2019 and q2 2020 if you compare the income in those two quarters it grew by 143% mm-hmm. in in 2020 so some of those things i found really fascinating because obviously that was the first time that maybe you hadn't been able to make the ask in person and i again i'm making sweeping statements here because mm-hmm. i'm sure there are lots there were lots of asks made virtually mm-hmm. before as well um but I thought that was really interesting. Um, we also found that uh, cash activity, so kind of um, appeals, whether mailed appeals, for example, did incredibly well. So it wasn't just emergency asks, you know, specific emergency asks that did really well. But any activity really, that seemingly, that went out during Q2, for example, when when it really kicked off, did really really well, wow. um, so it wasn't necessarily that direct link to COVID that was required. It was just everyone was looking to help, yeah. uh, which was amazing. So I don't know if that's surprising so much as just it like gives you a lot of faith in humanity. Well, so I'm it, really happy about it. It, it.
1: It's it's in it's interesting that you talk about. It. So I was in uh, last time I was in the UK. I was speaking at an event out in you know, I was I was in Canterbury, and it was, it was I think that was 2017. And at the time, th- there was sort of an interest, some of the, what I was talking about, there was an interest in individual and major giving amongst a lot of the people that I was talking to. And it was very evident that, that you know, there was, it was very evident to me. I think what I was picking up on there, if I recall correctly, I didn't just sort of remembering Um You know, you have this sort of this, you have this sort of the charity sector and you have sort of this trust fund, you know, these, you know, these old, very old trust, trust trust-based fundraising sort of money. And it seemed like that fundraising in the UK was sort of waking up to the idea that that, and something that, and, and they were, they were interested in what I was saying because I was coming from the US and perhaps Americans were assumed to be the ones who had figured out major giving or something, but maybe maybe what we've have now seen and based on what your data just what you're just sort of suggesting is is that we're actually seeing covid as one of those first major places where yeah major giving and individual giving has really sort of stepped it up and we know what we're doing now and we we don't have to keep asking these these prick Americans who don't necessarily know it all um and we can kind of figure it out on our own does that make sense because <laughs> it's not that because i think there's um I think there's a danger. I've never sort of said it this way, but I think there's a danger when because uh, when you think about the way that mass market fundraising generally works, it's very it's highly technical and it's done in large numbers. And sometimes we think that when we're doing major giving work, that we can sort of just translate a lot of those metrics and a lot of a lot of that just to it on a grander scale or, or you know or the same scale and same methods. And just expect bigger checks. And it doesn't really work that way. It is a, real, it is a total qualitative turn in what you're doing. Um, and and I think that was part of what, when I remember some of those conversations, I was like, that's really all it is. it's is. It's, you've just got to make sort of a qualitative turn towards, you know, it, it's not highly technical. Um, and, and so it can't necessarily be taught. It almost just has to be learned. It's work, it's work that mm-hmm. you learn in the field. It's not work that I can put in a technical manual. We have all these gurus here in the U.S. who've tried to write books on major giving when, in fact, what major giving really is is just learning how to perhaps have a meaningful conversation like you and I are. That's really all it comes mm-hmm. down to. Does that make sense? Yeah.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I and I absolutely hope that that is coming to fruition. I think that, you know, that... that. And there are incredible professional here, professionals here, of course, and I'm sure there are all over the globe, um, and one thing actually relating to that that I found really interesting was that the, the the growth in major donor income, for example, between Q2 2019 and Q2 2020, it wasn't income per donor going up. It was actually more donors giving.
1: Yeah. Okay. So
2: I thought that was really interesting. So comparing 2019 where there were, and it, of course it was because the need was more clearly evident. Yeah. And, you know, it was easy, it's easier, probably easier to describe the need. And again, I'm not a major donor fundraiser, so uh, I may be completely wrong there. Um, but I imagine that is the case. And so, being able to evidence that to a wider range of people, I thought was really interesting. So perhaps it didn't have an impact on how much people were giving. It, it actually impacted how many people were giving. And so, whether they were completely new contacts or kind of lapsed contacts, however, however you might describe them at your organisation major donor fundraisers were convincing more people to give, which is really powerful, you know, rather than those relationships they already had increasing their gift and, you know, encouraging them to give more, they were establishing new relationships, which um, I found, yeah, fascinating
1: considering. Yeah. And and, and that's so, and and that's what I probably wanted to tell some of, you see, major, what, what I've oftentimes wanted to explain to people is, is look, When when you're building a relationship with a major donor, whatever the hell major donor means, it's all contextual. And so I can't come I can't, uh, you can't fly me over and let me teach you how to contextually raise money with people for whom you're actually going to be able to make a more meaningful connection with than I am. And it's only, then it's sort of this emergent phenomenon that sort of comes as a result of the interaction. And so what COVID may have done for people who are now raising more significant gifts in larger numbers is it's just it's just the outcome of of doing the work and therefore learning the work Um, because it cannot be you cannot teach I've said this over and over again you cannot teach in my opinion you can't teach major giving in a classroom and I can't put it in a technical manual you just have to go out and do it learn how to communicate with people and in, in in the case of the UK covid gave you a great opportunity and it actually gave you the uncomfortableness of that zoom because a lot of them were probably doing meetings on zoom and platforms like this where you just had to be completely vulnerable and listen and you know put your shiniest face on right
2: yeah yeah absolutely and hopefully that relevance was you know was increased by the fact that everyone knew that everyone was in dire straits and you could you know everyone was so aware of what was happening with COVID. It maybe was easier for people to imagine what impact that was on a organization before even having that conversation to begin with perhaps.
1: So Um, Alex, uh, before I let you go, we lose our listeners at about 40 minutes and you've given me some extraordinary stuff. And and I'm very grateful as I'm sure the rest of my listeners are for you giving us sort of an update on where things are in the United Kingdom. But where do you think this is going to go? Like you guys aren't stopping. This isn't your only report. Um, it sounds like, as you started with, we're very optimistic about where things are going. You had some – it sounds like we have very brave fundraisers in the United Kingdom, as we do in other places. Where do you think this is going?
2: Well, we will well, – we're currently crunching the numbers for Q4, so I know that's still in the past and you're asking about the future. But just to squeeze that in, <laughs> we go, we're going to have a new report out Um within the next month so charitybenchmarks.org to get that updated q4 report which um i've had a little sneak peek at the numbers of and looks really promising and you know in the areas that were promising it seems q4 to be
1: that would be year in giving
2: so that um it's not financial year end here but it's the calendar year end so it was it's um, christmas was it october to december yeah, yeah, it was christmas. yeah
1: holiday giving right exactly. okay yeah 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 holiday giving yeah okay exactly yeah. so
2: um that uh that's that's really interesting and i think it helps give context because obviously being able to compare an entire year to an entire year is far more illuminating than kind of th- three quarters to, to four quarters so that's really important i hope where it's going is that um you know, charities continue to look after their people. And that was a big thing that came out, that charities were really concerned about looking after their fundraisers. Um, And I hope that continues, and I'm sure it will, um, based on everything I've read. And, you know, it's a really hard time to be a fundraiser with people losing jobs or something called the furlough scheme here, which um, means you might not be working full time, which is really difficult. But I hope we continue to be you know, a really vibrant group of people that that can do you know have amazing impacts on on the communities that we support which is you know what we're all in it for and uh, yeah i hope that continues and that organizations empower those amazing people to be brave and you know try try things that are right for their audiences and right for their organizations and allow you know allow people the public to be involved in the amazing things that these charities are achieving
1: Alex, it's been an extraordinary conversation. I'm very grateful for your time. Uh, you're always welcome back. Uh, just for uh, just as, as a quick reminder, how can people find this information? I'm going to put a link in the uh, show notes, and I will certainly put some information on LinkedIn where we post this. But uh, how can mm-hmm. people find your reports, tell us where the website is and those sorts of things, and you tell them so I don't botch it up.
2: <laughs> sure. So for the latest report, you can download it at charitybenchmarks.org uh the latest when we uh you know it will be updated with the latest report at the end of the month um and if you want to chat to us it's open creates um so yeah thank you so much for having me and uh yeah be very happy to continue this conversation at the time or with any of your listeners so uh
1: thank you again thank you alex